All right. If you got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 18. All right. So we're in the series, uh, So You May Believe. We've gone through eight lessons. They're all online. Uh, some have been online only. Some have been in person through this process that we're in. But uh, the next two, Lord willing, will be here in person. And we're going to talk about the passion and the purpose of the cross. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection uh, and some lessons that we've learned in John. So let me give you just let's recap real quick um, overall to get us to this point. Okay, Um, so we're in the gospel of John. John is uh, that apostle who was really close to Jesus, the last apostle to survive. He's writing at the end of his, towards the end of his life, he's writing this gospel, which is unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the synoptics because they're uh, similar or synonymous, all right? And John writes this unique perspective. So we said it's like four different people seeing the same car accident. Three people are on the ground seeing different perspectives, and John's up on the skyscraper looking down. He's got that lofty, higher picture of Jesus Uh, just because of who he is and what he saw. And a lot of what makes John John is that John was the only disciple to go all the way to the cross with Jesus, and he was so impacted by his love, which we're going to see here uh, this week and next week. And that gave him this, this guy, Son of Thunder, who was this fiery evangelistic preacher who really was racial, uh, and not compassionate. Now he becomes the apostle known for love. That's, that's just John. He, if you read his epistles, you read his gospel, he's now all about love. So he introduces to us this logos, this word of God from the cosmic beginning who spoke light and life. And, and just John chapter 1 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And he makes a case for Christ in a day when a new generation of Christians had emerged that did not know the apostles in that intimate way. And he gives them seven, seven, and seven. He says, here are seven significant statements Jesus has given us. Here are seven significant signs that he did while he was on this earth. And there are seven witnesses in his gospel that will testify to who Jesus is. That Jesus is God in the flesh, the Word of God made flesh. He is the Son of God, both 100% man and 100% God. He is the prophesied Messiah who came because God so loved the world, all right? So he gives us that case, and all of those have built through his gospel. He showed us the public ministry of Jesus, then he showed us the private ministry of Jesus, and now he shows us the passion of Jesus. That's the division of his gospel, all right? And so he's made this case to tell us, hey, you should, so that you may believe. This, this gospel is so you can believe in who Jesus is, And I'm giving you the case, so just like in a court trial, you've got the evidence, and you've got the testimony, and now you have that moment, the inquisition, the final moment of judgment. That is this moment. We are leading up to that case, and Jesus is literally about to be on trial, but John's perspective is it's not Jesus that's on trial. It's the world who crucified him, all right? So let's get into that. So... um, John chapter 18, um, let's just read just a moment here. In John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to talk about each section, okay? Uh, John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, which is the valley between, there's uh, in, in Israel today, 
there's, a, there's Jerusalem, which is the mount uh, where the temple is, the temple mount. There's a valley, and there's the Mount of Olives. It's really just two big hills. In the Mount of Olives, you walk down this thing called the Kidron Valley, and then you go into uh, Jerusalem, the city. Every day Jesus would teach in the temple. He'd walk down the Kidron Valley, just go back up. There's basically a hill with a stream in it, and go back up the next hill and, he'd, uh, and talk to his disciples. So now he, there's a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. On the way across the Kidron Valley, that's the garden called Gethsemane. All right. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received the Roman co- cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things, note that, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he went forth. Look at that. He knew what was about to happen, and he did it anyway. John wants you to know that. John doesn't want you to think Jesus' death happened accidentally. It was for this purpose, Jesus said, that I came to do the works of the Father. And so he knows I'm about to die. He's been telling him he's about to die. So John doesn't want you to think this is some random thing. He says, Then he went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Remember we said uh, in another class, we said Jesus means Savior. Nazarene means from branch, that Jesus is the Davidic branch, the Messiah, the one of David. And he says to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked again and said to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Look, he's, he's trying to save his, his buddies uh, even in, before the cross. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put up the sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, I, shall I not drink it? Okay, so what just happened there? John's account is very similar uh, to the other Gospels, but he's got a few things that he supplements here, uh, and one thing we're going to see here is the trial of Jesus. He's got a few extra steps. And one of the major things that we're going to look at is his kingship, and he's going to show that this case is completely groundless. All right, so as we're looking in the garden here, Jesus has prayed this high priestly prayer, and John 17, Father, I pray they be one as we are one. God, I pray that you protect my disciples and be with them. And I pray for every disciple that's going to come here in the future and that's ever going to come become a Christian. Lord, do they be one. And he's praying that in this olive grove, this little garden of olive groves called Gethsemane, which is right next to uh, the Mount of Olives. And John doesn't mention, it's interesting, John doesn't mention this agonizing prayer where we talk about dripping sweat of blood and, and tears. Uh, so John just focuses on Judas, and he, here's what happens. So Judas guides, look at this passage, Judas guides this mob, all right, of soldiers and this commander, and he's got, so that's Romans, and he's got the officials and the chief priests, and he's got the Jewish temple police, which represent this people called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin would be the people that we would say would be our Senate, okay, or our Congress, and just like we have Republican and Democrat, and each year there are a number of seats that are held, right? And they compete to who has the many majority. Same thing in Jesus' day. Jesus' day, there were Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, and there were Sadducees. Sadducees are the liberals. Pharisees are the conservatives. The Sadducees had more seats on the bench in that day. And so they come, 
They get the, the, the Jewish police. They get some soldiers. They get some officials. They get Judas. They go with him. There's a conspiracy here. Judas has uh, given Christ over, and you can debate why. Some people think it was because Jesus didn't show up in power, and he should have become a, this um, a real king who would have cast out Rome, and now he's going to die. So Judas says, you know what, I'm done with him. Some people say it's because Judas was a thief. He was corrupt from the core, and we know that's, he, did, he was a thief. But Judas betrays him with a kiss. But look what he says there in verse 4, 5, and 8. Uh, he says, they say, who is it you want? And he says this, I am he. Okay, now think about it. What did John have seven of? Seven significant statements. Jesus says to them earlier, he says, I am the bread. I am the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am that I am. So he's saying, every time he says I am, he's using the same words that, he, that Moses heard in the burning bush. I am that I am, right? And I am. So he's using those divine words. So when he says, get this, he, when he says, I am he in Hebrew or Aramaic, when he was saying it, he literally was saying, I'm God. I am he. So in the, in the moment that Jesus, the incarnate word of God, speaks his own name, look what happened. What happened? They, phew, they just fell down as dead men, and they get back up. Now, how many people would try to arrest this guy again? Like, the dude just said his name, and you fell down. And he's like, waiting for them to get up for a second. You done yet? Okay, who do you seek? I told you who I am. I'm he. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. I am the one. I am God. And he lets them take him. So John wants you to know this. Jesus didn't go because someone made him. He wants you to know he went willingly like a lamb to the slaughter. Because this is a guy, because all he's got to do is say his own name and people fall down as dead. He didn't get taken. He didn't get arrested. He went Willingly. Isn't that kind of cool? Um, so that's, that's this case. John wants you to know this is not something that happened. Uh, it was conscious. It was voluntary. It was vicarious. He says, I want you to let them go. Take me. I'm standing in for them. Don't, don't kill them. Take me. Jesus did it vicariously, substitution, and he was focused lovingly. Even in that moment, as he's getting arrested by the same guy, the guy gets his ear cut off. What does Jesus do? He puts the ear back on the man who's arresting him. Isn't that our God? Think about it. He could have said, you're dead, you know, or I'm just to take the other ear or whatever. But he says, no, Peter, this is not what I've come. I told you I was coming to drink a cup of suffering. I've come to suffer. So Peter, put that away. All right, so look at the next part. Chapter 18, verses 12, verse 12 through on. And we're just going to have to summarize this because there's a lot of reading. But I encourage you to read these last couple chapters. So now there's this moment of inquisition. It's a trial. And you are in America today, so you know what mock trials are. Just watch what happened to our uh, state attorney, our attorney general the other day. I mean, just come on. It was just a mock trial just for people to berate him. And so, and I'm not even being political about it. That's just the truth of it. And so here is Jesus having the same experience. They arrest him at night, which was illegal in Jewish culture. You can't arrest somebody at night, okay? So they arrest him at night, and immediately following his arrest, they take him to this guy named Annas, all right? Annas is, or John is the only guy who includes this part of the story. Annas is Caiaphas' father-in-law, okay? So in Jewish culture, 
you had the chief priest every year, which was voted on, not really, it was elected by the Roman government. They were bought off. The Roman governor would buy off or elect, have elected, the new chief priests. It had been this guy named Annas for so long, and now his son-in-law, note how that happens, his son-in-law now becomes the new chief priest. His name is Caiaphas. So at night, they take Jesus to Annas, who was this really, really powerful dude. And even though he wasn't in office, he had so much clout and authority. It's like the mafia. He can tell people behind the scenes what he wants done. All right. So he's in control of the city. They take him there at night. Um, he, was at one, he had made the Romans mad in his lifetime, and so they elected a son-in-law. And so this guy's um, he had been serving uh, before. Jesus was born. Now Caiaphas is there. So at night, this is this informal hearing. Jesus is sent to Annas' house, and then Annas says, okay, well, let's send him to my son-in-law Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas has got the, uh, he's got the actual authority. So now they take him to Caiaphas' house. And Jesus' first trial is called an ecclesiastical trial, which means it was just a hearing, it was a court, it was a religious thing. So the Roman, in verse 12, the Roman cohort and the commanders and the officers of the Jews arrest Jesus, bound him. They led him to Annas first, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And now we see Simon Peter and this other disciple is following them. Okay. All right, so Jesus has got this mock trial going on. He meets over, they meet him over the cover of night. They take him to one guy's house, the old high priest, take him to the next high priest's house, and they have a trial at night. They begin to beat him. They begin to accuse him. You can read the other Gospels and get into some of that. They, they um, mock him. They try to give up false witnesses against him. And now at the night, under the cover of darkness, with no defense on Jesus' behalf, Jesus doesn't get to call a defense attorney. He doesn't get to address his witnesses. He doesn't get to make his case. They just accuse him and say, look, see, he's guilty. It's in Rome and uh, Jewish culture, you had to have two witnesses against a person. So they find two witnesses in the crowd who will say whatever they want to say, and Jesus makes no defense, okay? So it's a mock trial, and John wants you to know that. And then he goes on to Peter's denial. Look in chapter 18, verses 15. So in John 13, Jesus had predicted that Peter was going to deny him earlier in the evening. This other disciple who is called, we know as John, he's following Jesus. Uh, he's got, he knows the high priest. Somehow or another, John the apostle had some connection with Caiaphas and his family was middle, upper middle class. So we don't know how. There's some relation there. John is allowed access in to this mock trial of Jesus. This is early, early, early Friday morning. I mean, like like 3 a.m., like early, early. Nobody's up. They just get everybody out of bed. And you note this, they don't get all the positive members of the Sanhedrin up. Joseph of Arimathea is not there. Nicodemus is not there. It's like as if the Democrats would have a mock trial to impeach President Trump, and they call a Congress when all the other Congress is asleep to get the vote they want. That's equivalent to what's happening right now with Jesus. They wake up the guys that know they'll vote the right way. They get them up at the crack of dawn early, early in the morning. John and Peter are able to sneak in in the back. John sees at a distance as they beat Jesus and accuse him and get false witness against him. Peter's there. Peter's standing out a little bit distant from John. 
And we know the story, if you know, Peter denies Jesus, and we won't, won't go into that, but he denies him three times, once to a slave girl at the door, uh, next to a group standing with him at the fire, and then finally to one of the high priest's servants, who was a relative of the man whose ear he chopped off, okay? So, hey, you're the guy that chopped off my cousin's ear. I know you were out there in the garden, and so then he said, you know, I, I curse it, I don't know the man, right? And so, in that moment, Peter being through the crowd somehow, looks, and him and Jesus make eye contact. The moment he says that, a rooster crows, he looks, he makes eye contact with Jesus. Can you imagine? He just denied him three times, and he realizes what he just did. It says he broke down and he wept bitterly, and he fled. That leaves John as the only true witness to what happened from here on out. How important is that, you know, to be the only guy with him? And let me tell you about the trial now. Okay, so how many people have heard of a guy named Pontius Pilate, right? Let me give you a little background on this guy, uh, as now we are about to see Jesus transferred to his house early, early in the morning. They're going to wait for Pontius Pilate to wake up, and they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate's house to expedite this mock trial and death. Pontius Pilate is perhaps the most famous example of a Roman governor uh, in the world, despite uh, all the people who uh, actually governed before him. Uh, From 26 to 36 A.D., Pilate was the governor of Judea, uh, in that area, you know, that's the area of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, He's he's called a Roman prefect, and he was responsible for the internal and external security. He was responsible for handling uh, major cases, okay? I haven't clicked that on. There we go, let's get you to it. Uh, he's deciding capital cases uh, in his day. He's living in a town called Caesarea, which is on the coast, and he seldom visits Jerusalem. This guy hates Jews. He doesn't want anything to do with Jews. He doesn't know Jews. He's a wicked, wicked man. He, one of his roles was to uh, make sure that the pleasures of Rome filled uh, Israel. He would put theaters and baths and games. Uh, Mary was a very homosexually open society. They tried to flood the streets with uh, their culture. All right, they hated the Jewish culture. Uh, he understood nothing about Jewish faith, one author says. Uh, and so he was very indifferent uh, to the Jewish people. And his duties included this. They included appointing a high priest every uh, time that was needed to control the Jewish temple funds. Uh, he often would irritate the Jews and put Roman symbols in the middle of Jewish worship just to instigate them. He just liked to poke at them all the time. This is this guy. Um, he, uh, every time the Jews uh, had a problem, they would accuse him of every crime. Uh, he would accuse them of cruelty and robbery. Uh, they saw him as inflexible, obstinate, self-willed, relentless, heartless, cruel, everything you can imagine. They, Jews, hated Pilate, all right? And then in 31 AD, right before this moment with Jesus, the emperor Tiberius tells Pilate and all of his governors, guys, I am tired of rebellion in Israel. I'm tired of rebellion in Judea. If I see any more rebellion, if you can't do your job, I'm going to come down there, and it's going to be your head, and I'm going to come do your job for you, and I will send my, my soldiers down there. We will just decimate the whole place. I'm tired of all these zealots, and these people are murdering my soldiers, and my soldiers are murdering them. We're on the edge of revolt and have been for some time. Pilate, I'm sending my worst man down there. I want you to be as mean and wicked as you can, but if you can't handle this, 
It's going to be you. So Pilate gets that word. He says, I want you to make sure you're not on one side putting down the rebellion, but on the other side, Pilate, if you don't have more fair policies and if you don't make it to where these people... So he's got this, you know, he's got this dilemma. You've got to be mean, but if you get too mean, you're going to cause a revolt. And either way, it's going to be your head. You can't handle it this way and you can't handle it that way. It's going to be your head. So he's got this pressure on him, and you're going to see that here in a minute, why he does what he does in Jesus' trial. Otherwise, he would have just killed him. All right? So the Gospels are going to show you kind of a weak pilot. That's because of the political pressure. Okay, so here's how a trial would work uh, in Roman times. All right? This is kind of important to understand uh, because uh, what was going on today. Rome was fearing rebellion, and they were fearing what was going on. Uh, it was a responsibility of the governor to have this absolute power, keep their authority. He would command his troops. Uh, he would amend or abolish laws that he saw. He, had, he was the prosecuting attorney, the judge, and the jury. All right? He would travel around the area hearing cases. It just so happened on this day, because it was the biggest Jewish holiday, he was sure to be in uh, Jerusalem. Okay, And he, with him rested the only power to sentence people to death for Roman causes, okay? He, he was the only guy, there we go, he was the only guy who could execute somebody in the imperial province if it was a Roman, you know, a Roman law that was broken, all right? And so he had these crimes. He said, if the people do this crime, it's called something called the Ordo. He said, it's an order of cases, just like we have a constitution and things like if uh, you get arrested for doing something, they say, well, recommended sentence for that crime is... Seven years, right? You know what I'm talking about? The judge has this recommendation. He knows what's the right punishment. Anything outside of that, if it didn't fit into their ordo, their category, it was totally up to him. And so he's about to meet a guy named Jesus, and Jesus don't fit into any of his categories. So Pilate has to make up what's about to happen to this guy. And that's why you see this dilemma with Pilate. All right? The Jews couldn't execute Jesus. Uh, They say in John 18, say, don't you know we can't execute him? But really they could have. But they are placing it on to Pilate. All right, so here we go. Look there in uh, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. That's the governor's headquarters where his military was and where he was. It was early. And they did, themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And he answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. He didn't want anything to do with him. And he says, um, The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, so he knows now they're thinking the death penalty, to fulfill the word which Jesus spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. Again, Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you a king of the Jews? All right, let's pause there. They take Pilate, they take Jesus now to Pilate's house. Now he's in a private trial. He goes in the governor's praetorium, his mansion, his governor's house. Note there what it said. It said, they themselves did not go in to the praetorium, a Gentile home, which was illegal, you couldn't do that, and be clean to go celebrate eating the Passover lamb on the Sabbath. Look at this, this uh, wow moment. Like, okay, you won't go into the governor's house because you will get ceremonially unclean but yet you will have a mock trial to murder a man. What? You are worried about all these things about whether or not you're going to be able to 
have a sacrificial meal or a, a you know, traditional meal with your family tomorrow because you go into a Gentile's house, but you can get up in the middle of the night, you can beat and curse and slander an innocent man, you can get a mock trial. You notice the hypocrisy of mankind? Just look at the world today. On one side, they can do this and say all life is valid, and then they go and do this over here. On the one side, they can say this, and on the other side, they can say that. You notice, just look at the world right, like right now in our country, that man, wickedly evil, he just bends the rules to what he wants. And so on one side, these priests are professing, we're clean, we're holy, we're going to celebrate the Passover lamb, and we're going to do this. But on the other side, they're killing the real lamb of God with a mock trial. John wants you to see that. He says they didn't even go in because they're so worried about holiness, yet they were murdering a man. Okay, look at that. So the Sanhedrin, this council, they've accused Jesus of treason. Uh, They say uh, that he is committing a crime, deserving the death penalty. He'll go on and they'll tell him that his cause for his death is he's called himself a king. So that means that he's come against Caesar. So we're going to turn him over to you, Pilate, for blasphemy against the emperor. He is, he is saying that he's the president of the United States. He's the one. He's saying that there's no king but him. All right. So they could have stoned Jesus for blasphemy under their law, but they didn't want Jews on their case. So they passed the buck. And you're going to see this happen in a few moments. They're going to keep passing the buck of Jesus. And there's a question that Pilate asks, what shall I do with this man? Billy Graham and several other great pastors have always have had sermons called, What Shall I Do With Jesus? Or What Will You Do With Jesus? I've heard it preached a bunch of times. And that's what the question here is. What are you going to do with this man? Seven IMs, seven miraculous statements, seven uh, significant signs. He's a mock trial. He's innocent. When he says his name, people fall down as dead. He can walk on water, multiply loads and fishes. He can raise the dead. Uh, you're trying to kill him. You've got a co-conspirator here. And you've, you've organized this whole thing, and you say, you know what? We don't really want to kill him, because if we kill him, his followers might revolt and not like us very much, and we might look like a bad guy. So let's hand him over to Pilate, tell Pilate it's a political crime. It's a political Roman thing. He's come against Caesar, not against God. So they say, Pilate, you kill him. You, you do this. So Pilate has to begin this interview process, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. So they pass the buck. The Jews demand that they crucify him. He, they say, it's not blasphemy. That's not really why we're giving it to you. It's a treason. He's come against treason. So Pilate, here's the case. It's early Friday morning, and he's outside uh, in this court where they would normally hear uh, Jesus. So they admitted him. He begins to talk to Pilate, and they say, well, who are you? Are you a king? And he begins to say, well, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he says, if I had my followers here, you couldn't do whatever you want to do to me. But he says, my father's really handed me over into your hands. That's how powerful he is. And the real crime is against those who turned, you, turned me over to you. It's those who are crucifying me illegally. And so he begins to say, look at this. He says uh, in verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. He admits to it. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Verse 37, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And here's what Pilate says. Pilate said, what is truth? This is probably one of the most pivotal moments in John's gospel. Because at the beginning of John's gospel, we are learning that Jesus Christ is the full revelation and manifestation of God, full of grace and truth. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. 
And then he gets to this moment, I have said I am. I've showed you my statements. I've shown you my signs. I've told you the witnesses against me. I've declared myself that I am he. And then Pilate, this Gentile person, says, but what is truth? And John is putting that out there to his readers. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? What is truth to you? Do you believe the evidence that is against this man? I'm telling you, John's telling us, it's a mock trial. It was started in the middle of the night. There's no evidence against him. There's been no proper witnesses against him. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. They charge him for blasphemy. Then they change. I mean, it's like going up there for uh, what you'd see happening in Congress. They begin to change. Well, if we can't get you on this, we're going to try to get you on this. You notice this? How, it's like the men are always the same. Mankind is always the way it is. And so we can't get him for blasphemy. Well, let's get him for treason. We can get him for treason. Give him to Pilate. Pilate, get him for treason. And Pilate's like, well, what am I going to do with this guy? I have no, no, there's nothing in the ordo for this cause. I find no fault with this man. He says he's the king of a spiritual world. That has nothing to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. I haven't seen any crime. You haven't produced any witnesses. There's nothing in here for this guy. So what's the truth here? And right there before him stands the man called truth. You notice that? Right there, right in front. Can you imagine? He's missing it. In front of him stood the living truth, the word of God. And he asked the question, what is truth? I think that's just phenomenal. So he interviews him. He asked him what is truth. In ancient times, they would stir up the crowd. A Sanhedrin began to say things in the audience, crucify him, crucify him. They started a mob, a riot, if you will, and they said this mob, mob mentality. You can't sway it with blasphemy. Not working. We tried the accusation through the courts of treason. It don't seem to be working. Let's get a riot going. If we get a riot going, we will have political pressure to expedite this trial before the afternoon sunset. If we don't get this done by sunset, the Jewish festivities will happen and we can't do a trial over the weekend because it's a holiday. All right? So let's get, get this through. All right, crucify, crucify. Everybody say it. Crucify, crucify. Get, get a crowd. Get some guys with torches. Get some guys with some clubs. Get everybody here. Start getting everything. Because we know Pilate's on pressure. If he thinks a riot's coming, he will hurry up and get this over with and appease the crowd. You notice how this happens even in modern context too doesn't matter what's right or wrong or what's true, but if there's a crowd, appease them. If there's a violent crowd, appease them even quicker. So he begins to appease the crowd. So what does he do? He takes Jesus. He has him flogged, okay? There's two types of beatings here that would happen in the Roman day. First is flogging. Flogging often was just rods or reeds, and they basically beat you to a pulp. They take him back. They had him flogged. They beat him. They bring him back out, all right? And they say, here's your Jesus, and they're like, no, 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 crucify him. So what, what does Pilate do? He's like, I can't. I have no reason to cru- crucify this guy. He's innocent. So he sends him to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus, right? Herod Antipas is this new lower-level Jewish governor. He's a fake Jew. He's a half-Jew. And he goes, and they basically mock Jesus. They put him a purple robe on him. They mock him as a fake king. They make fun of him as a gesture in a court. And they send him back. And he's like, he's no threat to me. So now you have a fake king mocking the real heavenly king in his own city on his, Jesus' throne. 
Herod Antipas thinks he's the king of Jews. And now he's mocking the real king of the Jews, calling him no threat to his own authority. And he sends him back to Pilate. Can you imagine? Okay, just pause. Do you imagine the strength of resolve, the self-control Jesus had to have in a moment when he's been illegally arrested, he's beaten, tried, falsely accused, tried for blasphemy, didn't work, tried for treason, didn't work, now a mob mentality against him. Now he gets thrown in front of this overweight, mocking, basically an idiot of a man who has no genealogy in the Jewish kingdom, and he says, you're nothing. You're a mockery. You're no threat to my authority. And that man right there walking on the earth was the king of the world. He could have just went, zap, you're done. I'm tired of this. But it says he uttered not a word. We can't even stop talking sometimes to our in-laws when we should shut up, right? I mean, this guy had every reason to call down angels and lightning and fire and brimstone, and he uttered not a word. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing love. It's amazing grace. And so now, with a lack of evidence, Pilate sends him back. Or they get sends, he, Herod sends him back. He refused to try Jesus' case. No threat to his authority. Pilate's wife is now saying, Pilate, don't. I had a dream. Uh, don't, don't kill him. I had a dream. There's something bad going to happen if you kill this man. But now he gets in front of the high priest. Uh, the Sanhedrin continues to press Pilate. He says, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. So in some what they're saying, we will go tell Caesar on you, and we will tell him that you started this revolt, and this is all on you, and you're going to die. And so they blackmail him, and so what happens? Now, Jesus, it's Friday morning. It's 9 a.m. Pilate washes his hands of the injustice that he's about to do. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows what he's doing is not right, and yet he still does it anyway. Now, again, this is not to say this guy, Pilate, is still this mean, 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 evil man. But there's something about Jesus that even Pilate recognizes. I don't see any fault in him. Think about that. One of the most evil men to come into Jerusalem and rule the Jewish people says, I don't really see what. Your problem is. There's a lot of preaching in that. So here's the egalities in his trial. Number one, he's been questioned by the high priest without a witness. John wants you to know that. He's been struck in the face before he was accused. That was illegal in Jewish culture. And number three, no charges were brought against Jesus. No witnesses were ever produced. And the verdict of Jesus' death is completely political. Can't get him on blasphemy. Can't get him on treason. Can't get him by Jewish law. Can't get him by Roman law. Let's write up a revolt. Let's start a riot. Let's blackmail Pilate. Okay, I wash my hands of it. You want him dead? Fine. So at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, all that happened by night. Think about that. All that happened from Thursday night all by Friday morning at 9 while everyone's asleep. All of his followers, the people who had sang Hosanna, Hosanna, nobody was up. Nobody was coming around. It was all under secret. 9 a.m., before most are aware, Roman soldiers crucified Jesus as an enemy of the state of Rome. The Jews had said they had no king but Caesar repeatedly, but Pilate antagonized them. 
And he crucifies Jesus because he hates him so much. He says, here's what I'm going to put on the order of his death, king of the Jews. And he would order Jesus to be crucified for sedition as king of the Jews. Verse 19 says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And that literally would read, Savior of the branch. Savior from branch. The branch meaning the Davidic Messiah. That's what Nazareth means in the Hebrew. King of the Jews. And he was crucified for the very thing that he literally was. Can you imagine? I mean, sometimes you do good things and sometimes you do bad things and sometimes you get in trouble for doing bad things. But he died clearly. They want, John wants you to know, he did not die for something he did that wasn't true. He did not die for something that he was accused of. He literally died because of who he is. Not because someone said he was, but literally because who he is. On his tombstone, on the cross, it read, Jesus the Savior, born from the branch of God, King of the Jews. That's literally who he was. And they crucified him for being who he is. All right? So they take him, and they write that on that in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the language of the Jews. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. And the Greek was the language of commerce and culture. So that means that every single person that would walk by him on the road would see it in their own unique language. And that is, John, in some way, or the way God organized it, that this message was going to the world. Isn't that something? It's not just happenstance. He wrote, it in every, he wrote it in the Jewish language, in the Roman language, and in the language of the modern world. Jesus, King of the Jews. Isn't that something? The witness. It was a witness. And John says, this, this is the statement that will, they, they said the, the shot heard around the world. You've heard that statement. This is that moment with Jesus. It's that statement. Jesus says, well, I will be risen up and I will draw all men to myself. That's that moment. So they take Jesus he takes his own cross beam. We know the story if you watch any of the Passion of the Christ. He takes his own cross beam uh, for a ways, and then they get another guy named Simon of Cyrene who would be a black man, and a black man would carry his cross all the rest of the way with him. Uh, along the way, Jesus would be saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and he would repeat that over and over again. They would take him there. He was with other, two other criminals to die as a criminal's death, which would be prophesied against. And John, as you read this, as you read his gospel, and you read into these statements, John will begin to tell you over and over again, this was to fill blah, 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 blah. This was to fulfill blah, blah, blah. John wants you to know that all of this was done to fulfill Scripture, that all of this had been prophesied. Everything you see Jesus say on the cross, you will find in the book of Psalms. Every statement he says, he begins to fulfill Scripture one after another. Okay, so it's 9 a.m., they crucify him. He keeps saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He hangs there, hangs there publicly to die slowly. The goal of the Romans was that he would die there slowly over the next several days. That was the goal of the cross. This cross was designed in a way that you would suffer and die to the most extreme possible. And we would linger this out to the point that you'd still be alive and birds would come and pluck out your eyeballs. That was the goal. You'd be completely naked. You'd be on the side of a highway. And people would go by and it would put fear into the heart of people that don't do what that guy did. Don't do what that guy did. And every time you want to take a breath because you were up there. Now, don't forget that 
uh, we didn't say it earlier, but Jesus, after he had been flogged and come back out, they had him whipped with the cat of nine tails. So his back was completely filleted open. So he's on this cross. He's got uh, nails or spikes driven in through his wrists, through his feet. They pull him up there. They were used the cross beam. They were used the post. They left the post in the ground. They used to fix the cross beam onto it each time. All right. And every time he wants to take a breath, he has to push up off of his feet, hold on with his arms. He released down. So he's got the wood rubbing up on the back of him. You know, I have an open filleted back. In fact, the Bible says in another gospel that an angel had come and strengthened him the night before in the garden so that he could survive to the very end because they had treated him so badly. So he's there. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's bleeding from the head. He's drowning in his own bodily fluid in his lungs. They're filling up with water. He's holding there, and it's getting to be midday. Says The Bible says that they gave him an opiate to dull the pain, which was wine mixed with myrrh, but after tasting it, he rejected it. He didn't want anything to dull the pain. He took it all in. He took all the world's pain in. He didn't have anything numb in his life. He didn't try to numb the pain. In this world, we try to numb the pain with all kinds of things. Jesus took that pain. Think about that. That's a whole sermon in itself. The soldiers began to divide up his garments and cast lot for his tunics, and that was prophesied in Psalms 22, verse 18, that David said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. In verse 22, in chapter 22 of Psalms, verse 15, it says, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and I thirst. And in Psalms, uh, in Psalms 34, it says that they protected all of his bones, not none of them would be broken. And John notes that as they begin to watch Jesus die, that they'll not break any of his bones. All right? So the soldiers are mocking him. They're saying, save yourself, and, and all these things are happening. One, soldier be, or one robber confesses his guilt. The other one says, hey, Jesus, don't forget me. And Jesus says, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. So everybody begins to watch him at a distance. Let me just give you the narrative, and then we're going to wrap it up here. He's completely innocent. They're mocking him as they're passing. The women of Jesus' following have come with him. John has made it all the way. John has followed him through the trial, through the mocking, through the beating, through the scourging. John has stood at a distance and watched it. Now John has followed him, taking his crossbeam. John sees Simon of Cyrene take it. John sees him fix him to the post. John sees the, the hammering of the nails. He hears the screams. He hears the, all of this stuff. He hears the mocking. And then the soldiers have taken, Jesus had a single, Jesus' tunic had no seams on it. It was a unique kind of, probably something someone gave him. And uh, instead of ripping it apart, they cast lots for it, which was in Scripture that they would do. So as this is unfolding, John wants you to know that multiple Messianic prophecies are all right now just being filled, filled, filled. No man ever before, ever after, and I don't have the stat on me right now, but it's something, it is a number so significantly small that no other man in history ever before or after would ever be assumed to have over uh, 600 prophecies fulfilled about him in one moment, okay? So all the things from his birth to his death have all been fulfilled. And John has begun to show you all the things that happened. Everything that happened from the donkey uh, on Palm Sunday to the things he said, to the things he would say on the cross, to the things that would be done, to the people even dividing his clothes, to even the drink they'd give him on the cross. John was wanting to tell you every single thing that happened to Jesus had been foretold and now had been fulfilled, so there'd be no single doubt. This guy is the deal. It happened. It was real. It had been told hundreds, thousands of years in advance, all being fulfilled in this one moment. And so he shows us that 
And then John is there, and he says, John, behold your mother. And John takes the rights of Jesus' own mom to come as a son to her and care for her till she dies. At 12 p.m., now that was at 9, into 12, 12 p.m., darkness comes upon the region for three hours. So you can see that God in that moment had begun to turn his own back on his own son. Then at 3 p.m., Jesus cries out in Psalms 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus feels the forsakenness of sin. He takes every sin upon him from beginning of time to end of time that would ever be confessed and relied upon him. He would die for all the sin of the entire world. And for the first time in his entire existence, he would be separated from his eternal father. His oneness would be broken. Remember the thing he prayed in John 17? Father, I pray they'd be one as we are one. That oneness at that moment was broken. It's as if this is God now. It's as if you've had or had a broken heart before. It's as if God was separated from a piece of himself. That God would have personal injury to himself, not only in the physical body, but in the spiritual, emotional relationship that he had in himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in himself, one God, would find this perfect harmony, which represents the, who the Godhead is. God, one God totally together as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now the Son goes separate from Father and Spirit. I don't understand it. I just know what it means. It means that God would be even allowing himself to be divided, separated from himself. I don't know if you want to call it schizophrenia or whatever, but it's this internal tearing of God's own nature by sin. He would take sin, the holiness of God, the one that the angels sing about and bow down to, the one that they say, holy, 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 and the whole world is filled with his glory, he would allow sin to touch him. That's powerful. So Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out from the position of flesh, and he says, I'm thirsty. Soldier fills a sponge with sour wine, which is a popular drink of the soldiers, places on a branch, gives it to him to drink. Jesus says, it's finished. What's finished? What do you say he came here to do? The work of his father. He says, I've completed everything my father wanted me to do. And at that moment, he fulfills Psalms 31, verse 5, where it says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, straight from the Psalms. Jesus breathes his last breath, bows his head, yields his spirit. That moment, the veil of the temple, which is a 60-foot by 30-foot curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, you know where the thing from Indiana Jones, right? The Ark of the Covenant separates it, was ripped, and two, from top to bottom, which is just like a, I can't remember, a six, nine-inch thick curtain that no man could rip. You'd have to take a knife and cut from bottom up, and it would take several people. In one moment, this huge 60-foot by 30-foot veil was torn top to bottom, no man on a ladder. It was, impo- it was thought that it would be impossible to rip this thing, and it was ripped in two. Earthquake happens. Tombs begin to open up. Dead men begin to come out that are old, saint, old saints of old. And uh, now, even that moment, the centurion who kills him says what? Surely this man was the Son of God. So a Gentile recognizes it at that moment. So the sum of all this for John is men questioned truth over these three years. Men rejected truth. Men mocked the truth. Then men killed the truth. 
So he'd finished the Father's work. Death crowned his ministry. One final act. In John 19, verse 35. Let me read that, and we're going to wrap it up. John 19, verse 35. After the soldier pierced his side, he says... But one of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and immediately blood and water came out, which you'll read in 1 John. Water and the blood testify. And he who has seen has testified. And this testimony, his testimony is true, John's. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. So that you may believe. You follow this moment. We're going to talk about the resurrection next week. But John wants you to get to the end of Jesus' passion, the moment that he was crucified and died. He wants you to see the illegalities. He wants you to see the question of what is truth. He wants you to see the affirmation that I am he. He wants you to see that they tried to get him on every single count, and they couldn't, so they did it in a mock way. They slandered him. They oppressed him. They beat him. They formed a riot. They blackmailed somebody to kill him. And when they killed him, man, heaven and earth shook. Every scripture of the Old Testament became fulfilled. And even Gentiles, even people who were there, Pilate, one of the most evil men, says, what should we do with this guy? He's innocent. And even a Gentile, at the very moment that he was dying, said, surely this guy has got to be something divine. And the whole world would know it, but the most religious people, his very own people, would kill him. And isn't that just like us? It's like we're all, we can all be blind through religion, through our own self-preferences. All the world begins to, it looks at Jesus and hates him for whatever reason is that he reveals the truth of who he is. They hate him not for anything but the fact that he says he's God, that he says he's king. Because he's God and he's king, that means his way is the only way. His way is the right way, that he defines what is truth, that our hearts don't get to define What's truth anymore? We don't get to say what's sin and not sin. We don't get to say what gives me pleasure or doesn't give me pleasure. We don't get to say what's right and wrong. That he is truth. He's the only way to eternal life. And you can't go any any into eternal life except by going it his way. So that stands in contrast to our own very nature. It reveals the sin inside all of us. And what we'll find here at the very end is this. Those are the messianic prophecies. You have them in your list. I want to say, tell you about his burial, and then we're going to go. Because this is significant. It tells you that there is hope for every single one of us who've betrayed Jesus, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Two men would come to the cross with John. I think all three of these guys would have went home that night with blood on their hands. I think they would have, they would have taken him down. Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, both are rich men. Joseph's a rich man. They're both members of the Sanhedrin. Both of them, specifically Joseph, didn't agree with the conspiracy against Jesus. He had stood up for Jesus earlier, but they silenced him. He was a conservative on the Sanhedrin. And they said, well, Joseph, do you want to be one of his disciples too? Who are you? What are you talking about? good about this guy for? Hush. That happened early on in Jesus' ministry. He goes and they ask for his body from Pilate, which just to do that alone was to risk his own life and reputation. He goes, he, gets, he has a, a tomb in his family nobody's ever been in before, maybe his own tomb that he had bought and prepared for his life. He goes, he gets his body. Nicodemus comes as well. 
Nicodemus was a Pharisee as well. Remember, he's the one that came to Jesus by night at the beginning of his ministry and said, what are I going to do to be born again? Jesus says it's like the wind, um, it's like the, the breath. Uh, you might be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. He had defended Jesus at one point, but it would mocked well, so he kept silent during the trial. Nicodemus comes, he brings 100 pounds of spices to embalm the body. It has been said that 100 pounds of spices, think about how much 100 pounds of essential oils would smell, all right? You got one little vial at Walmart, man, it'll fill a whole house. This guy had 100 pounds of essential oils, okay? That's an aroma. They said that offering would have been the size of the offering for a king. So he dies, king of the Jews, and he's buried as a king. And the people who bury him were people who were on the committee that sentenced him to death, but now have come out and said, that should never have happened, right? They, they admit the problems in the trial. And if you go into church history, both of these men, it is, a, it is legend would say, that they would lose their reputation, lose their job, be mocked, and be put out, and they'd both become preachers of the gospel. That's something. And so what is the cost, I guess, for you and for me today? How do you think, one, how do you think this affected John seeing all this and why he writes it in such a way? We're going to talk about the love. John's going to talk about love next week. But what does this say for us? One, to realize what Jesus did for us. That's number one. But two, what it costs us to stand up for Jesus in a day when so many people hate him, and so many people want to kill him, and so many people want to put him out of society for just being who he is. But what we see from his very action is how loving, how gracious, how he utters not a word. He controls himself. He dies, and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he takes it, and he's divided within himself. He endures the physical pain, the eternal separation. And yet in that moment, it's up for us to be in this day and age to say, you know what? This is a day, I don't think the day that we live in is very much different from that day. The illegality, the mock trials, the false accusations, all these things happening. There's coming a day, uh, I believe, very soon in our generation in America, where you and I are going to be persecuted more than probably the American church has ever seen. At least in my children's, I believe it'll happen in my children's day. Uh, to be ridiculed and mocked for being a Christian. Right now, you can barely hold a federal judge. You can't be appointed for very many high offices in our country if you have any views against homosexuality or abortion or you stand for the truth of God. Think about it, what's happening in our country. There will be a day for all of us to be like Joseph of Arimathea, to be like Nicodemus, and to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? And what do you say is truth? And to point people back to this king who loved the world enough to die, to obey God's will, and that all of the case was against him. And everybody uh, said that this, this isn't who he is. He's got to kill him, to kill him. But all the evidence points, this guy is who he says he is. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me tonight? What will you do with Jesus? What do you say is truth? And how do we look at this moment and say, man, what love he had for us.
what he was willing to do for us, what he endured for us, and what he took on himself, made a man of, became a man of no reputation that he might die for our sin, taken what our sin was on his body on the cross, that God so loved the world he gave his son, said whosoever would believe would never die. And so let's just take a moment. Can we just have some, just a personal worship moment, just you giving thanks to God uh, in your own way, and just tell God how much you love him and, and that we want to stand for him for all that he's done for us. And so, Father, we just come before you tonight, and God, we just take in the passion of Jesus Christ, not only the pain and suffering, but God, that you were witnessed as innocent, that there was no guilt or fault found in you, that you are perfect, you are pure, you are holy, but yet, Lord, you took on our sin, you took on our shame, you took on the pain in your own body, you were separated from your own Father, and Jesus, we thank you tonight, Lord, for who you are, that you would endure ridicule, that you would come to earth and and repeatedly try to tell us who you are, and yet when we didn't believe you, and when fake kings mocked you, and when they slandered you, and tried every way to kill you, you still took it, Lord, and you showed us your love that God in the flesh came and just was ridiculed, made a mockery of men, his beard plucked out, beaten and cursed for just being who he is. And yet, Lord, that we would be like these early disciples, like John, and go all the way to the cross with you and never leave your side. And no matter what we come in our life, God, that we will stand for you for truth. And God, that we will tell the world that you love them. And Lord, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, that we would count it all loss that we will take up our cross and follow you even to the death to tell the world you are a king, that you are God, that you loved us enough to save us, and that there is a way, Lord, to find eternal rest and peace with you, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, God, we just exalt you and help us this week to live, Lord, as this moment would define us, that John, like he wrote, so that we may have full confidence and faith and believe in this story. May we have more faith to walk through these days that we see that ourselves are in God in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, be encouraged. Jesus is who he says he is. Next week, we're going to end it up with the love uh, and his resurrection.